You are listening to the sermon podcast from House for All Sinners and Saints. We are a congregation of the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, located in Denver, Colorado. And you can find out more about us at houseforall.org. Hi, church. Grace, peace, and mercy is yours from the triune God. Amen. And happy pride. This on a day of celebration, I'm sure I'm not the only one who has a really heavy heart because of what went down on Friday from SCOTUS. But because the Holy Spirit always seems to know how to get me, it seems to me that the gospel passage for today is speaking directly to my heart, as well as to the complexity and the danger of our present world. And it's a mirror right in my face. But I believe it also brings a path of hope. So the gospel text for today said, Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. What does that mean? He had been healing and teaching and feeding people and all those things, and that, but something in the story has shifted. Now he started talking about betrayal and death and crosses. And we know what he's heading towards in Jerusalem. But the text says he is resolute. But meanwhile, they're on the road together, he and the disciples, on the way to Jerusalem, and they pass through Samaria. And the Samaritans, if you remember, and the Jews were enemies. Apparently, during the exile hundreds of years before that, the Israelites had intermarried with the Assyrians, and their descendants became the Samaritans. And sometimes the Samaritans were even called half-breeds. Things don't change much in 2,000 years. And although they worshipped the same God, they all disagreed on where is the okay place to worship, Jerusalem or elsewhere. So the text said that during this visit, they rejected Jesus because he had set his face towards Jerusalem. They were mad at Jesus for that. I will come back to that. However, he had been really good to them. If you remember stories like the Good Samaritan and the woman at the well. But as we heard, some of the disciples were angry that they had been rejected by the Samaritans and asked Jesus if they should command that fire come down from heaven to consume them, like you do. I do. And that sounds like Facebook this weekend, pretty much. But here is where the text holds mirror up to me, because wanting to call down fire reflects back my propensity, the human propensity, our propensity towards scapegoating, projecting, us versus them, the God is on our side mentality. We need to crush them, then we'll be okay. I felt that a lot this weekend, I just confess to you. Nadia used the word frage, a combination of fear and rage, and I really resonate with that. You know, sociologists say that ever since the very beginning of human community, there has been some sort of scapegoating mechanism in place. If a tragedy happens, then it must be the fault of someone or something. If we cast our sins upon that person or those people and sacrifice them, then we are safe again. We are good. Order is restored. Over, this, over time, this belief has become ritualized in religions. It became sanctified. It's human history, and I know many here have been on the receiving end of scapegoating. It's patriarchal history. 
And it's happened to women again, and my desire is to want to do the very same thing back. But Jesus rebukes the disciples and me. He says, no, we're not bringing fire down from heaven. So they keep walking. They seem a little bit chagrined, a little bit sheepish, and one of them says, I will follow you anywhere. But at this point, Jesus seems to start talking harshly, just like that Galatians passage. He's speaking then of having nowhere to lay his head, and he tells a guy if he really wants to follow him, he can't go bury his father, and they can't go say goodbye to their families. And if you even, <laughs> if you even so much as put your hand to the plow and look back, well, then you're not fit for the kingdom of God. It almost seems like Jesus is messing with them. But when I read this, I hear kind of a tone of both frustration and sadness in him. It's like he's saying, do you really want to follow me? Do you not see how different my path is from anything you've ever known? Seems like he's changing the rules on them. And many use this passage to talk about the cost of discipleship, and that's true. But I really think there's more going on in light of the disciples' passion to rain down fire. I think Jesus is asking them and us to think differently to be open to a new consciousness, new eyes, a new mind beyond the us and them mind, the scapegoating mind that commands power over others, judges others, punishes others, divides, and crucifies others. Jesus is trying to show them that that is not his way. That's not the mind of Christ. His is a new way, and some are not going to like it, and they will turn back. According to the gospel text, Jesus indicates that he knows that he's headed for betrayal and the cross. At the very least, he has offended those who are in charge of the religious law. The ancient Hebrew story teaches that the Ten Commandments, which are among the most holy parts of the Jewish religious law, were kept inside this thing called the Ark of the Covenant, which was an ornate, gold-covered wooden chest. And you remember it was found by Indiana Jones, so we've all seen it. On the lid, there are two cherubim, two angels, and they're facing each other. And some ramp in, um, I was reading some commentaries by rabbis, and they say, yes, they're facing each other, and their wings are stretched out in front of them, towards each other. And that could be either an expression of love, or it could be that they are confronting one another. But in any case, they're standing opposite one another, like two sides, us and them. But what's fascinating in the uh, Hebrew text is it says that on this lid, in between the two angels, the two cherubim, is the mercy seat from which God speaks to her people. God says, I will meet you there, not at one side or the other, but there in the place of mercy. Likewise, there is the cross. The two poles of the cross are nailed in opposition to one another. The two opposing poles can represent how one side stands over against another. It's the image of all the tensions of all the opposites in the world. It holds all the binaries, east and west, north and south, Republican and Democrat, gay and straight, cis and trans, male and female, right and left, the avalanche and the Tampa Bay lightning all seeing the other as other. And some are actually trying to crush one another, which is okay in hockey, but not with humans. <clears throat> and we all have a pole 
or side that we lean towards, and sometimes even unwitt unwittingly. Excuse me. If you've ever seen the show The Good Place, it's kind of genius. It's got, it raises all kinds of philosophical questions about heaven and hell and being good and that kind of thing. But they figure out that no one has actually gotten to the good place, or heaven, in about 300 years because we can no longer even choose a muffin without being complicit in some system that oppresses others. But there we have, on the cross, within the tension between all the opposites, Jesus is the mercy that hangs between. He does not stand again with one side or the other and beat it down. Jesus, the last scapegoat, takes both sides into himself and dies. Mercy is where God meets us. But I've had folks say, but wait a minute, doesn't this metaphor seem to equate the oppressor with the oppressed? when God clearly identifies himself with the oppressed. But what we forget about is that we all have a shadow side. Take the United States, for example. Please. It is. That's, nice. That's a really, really old joke. You guys are young. I can't believe you. <laughs> but the United States is, was considered a liberal, secular, ethnically diverse, and pluralistic culture. And it needs a shadow. It has a shadow, which would be something illiberal, intolerant of diversity, theocratic, and tribal. And if you remember after 9-11, it was the fundamentalist Muslims. They were hated. They were feared. They were the shadow, our shadow. And now we're seeing both those sides of the shadow right here in our own borders. It's always been there. It's just becoming very, very clear to us now. But I believe what Jesus is trying to awaken us to is to not remain unconscious to that truth, and thus become our shadow. In fighting the oppressor, we must not become the oppressor. That's how we lose ourselves, taught Jesus. If you try to save your life, you lose it. One of our housemates in Diaspora, the awesome Bee from Philadelphia, she gave me permission to share the story. They are very open about being in recovery, as are many of us here. They shared that the anxiety of the 2016 election and the many days afterwards that it took to figure out who was actually president were extremely difficult, and they were tempted to drink to get through it. And at one point, right in the middle of the night, they thought, I need a meeting. I need to get to an AA meeting. But where is one in the middle of the night? So they thought, well, it's daytime in Australia. So they went online and found a meeting in Australia. And lo and behold, there's another American in that middle-of-the-night online meeting in Australia. And he was from Georgia. And he was also stressed about the election for completely different reasons. So there on the screen, B had their pride flag on the wall behind them. And on his wall behind him, he had his Confederate flag. Talk about opposing poles. But B said that they knew that if they chose to drink to get through the stressful time, it could kill them. And both folks, both of these people refused to get caught in the poles, the us and them. Together, they chose something higher. They chose mercy for themselves and for each other. If you lose your life, you'll find it, says Jesus. There's a lot of mercy that happens in those meetings. 
It's a hard teaching, though. So did working together in that meaning mean that B was affirming white supremacy? Of course not. Was that man now affirming gay pride? Unlikely. But it's often not popular or safe to have mercy upon those who oppose us. Mercy and love are costly and sometimes can lead us to where we have no place to lay our heads. I think Jesus was warning us. But being on a side, and clearly they're not all equal, does not define us. God's mercy defines us. Nothing less than love will ever have the last word on who you are or who I am. Carl Jung, who's the shadow guy, said that I learned that all of the greatest and most important problems of life are fundamentally unsolvable. They can never be solved, but only outgrown. Mercy sees through an entirely different perspective. I believe it's a movement forward in human evolution. Because mercy integrates, we see ourselves without denying our own shadow sides, our own propensity to want to cast out or to crush. So therefore, we can offer mercy to others who do the same thing. Conversion begins with self-acceptance. It begins when we recognize we are truly both sinner and saint. We're seeing tons of fragmentation in our world right now, but there's also a lot of integration happening. For example, there's the integration of faith and science going on. I have a brilliant friend who wrote a paper on the law of entropy in the universe, which says that over time, everything moves towards disorder and falls apart. But alongside of that is a force which knits everything together, like particles to become atoms, and atoms to become molecules, and molecules to become substances, etc. The whole universe is increasing in diversity and complexity and depth. And they say that entropy is actually needed to make that happen. Without the dying or the falling apart, new things don't come forth. It's amazing that the Paschal mystery, the Easter story, is written right into the fabric of the cosmos. And then there is spirituality and sexuality. Jesuit priest Teilhard de Chardin says that sexuality is inherently spiritual. They are the same energy. Sexuality is the energy of the spirit to join together, to bring our uniqueness, our energies, our giftedness, to create something new. It is the energy of flourishing in which we each give of ourselves for the sake of love. It is far larger than just a side. It doesn't belong to just one type of person who happens to fit a certain mold. Sexuality is simply the longing for wholeness and connection between us all. And what is underlying all of this? Personally, communally, cosmically, it is love. Tiard says that the physical structure of the universe is love. But sexuality is expressed ultimately in the communion that is God's love. In our tradition, Jesus is the exemplar of the communion between the divine and the human. That tells us that our differences, whatever we uniquely bring to each other and to the world, is fundamental to communion. It is not an obstacle to communion. Differences make communion possible. It is in community with you where I bring all my weirdness that I am awakened to the magnanimous heart of God. The Eucharist is the body broken and blood shed. 
There we see separation, fragmentation, dismembering. Then Christ is remembered in us as we take this meal together. And as we share it, we are remembered, all of the disparate, lost, and hated parts of ourselves. And all the disparate, lost, and hated parts of community, too. The Eucharist is ultimately about integrating back to wholeness, to oneness, in God, in each other, and in ourselves. It is a template. It's an icon for the ultimate union of God in all things, which is the promised future from the Christ story for everyone. It is the kingdom of God, not just after resurrection, but Jesus says it is right here, right now. That is much better news than our side gets to go to heaven and yours doesn't. The table is reckless mercy because all without exception are welcome there. So Jesus kept saying in this text, essentially, don't look back. Don't look back. He had set his face for Jerusalem towards the cross because it is the way of healing and forgiveness and hope. He was resolute because of this. Jesus truly is the last scapegoat because God's response to that cruel death was and is mercy. God forgave. So what was meant to destroy, God uses to heal. What is meant to diminish and break apart, God uses to create peace. Our nation is in crisis, but Jesus is emphatic. Don't go back to the old ways of calling down fire on one another. Take action, yes, but don't look back towards the old way, the way of divisiveness and violence. Do you hear? I'm preaching to myself here. We come to the table and receive again God's mercy for ourselves so that we may live in mercy for all. So I'll be honest, my heart is hurting today. My heart is angry. There's frage. And like the Samaritans, I don't always want the way of the cross that Jesus was so resolute about. I can't do it. But God can. God is creating peace among us right here, right now. And so we may, may we live openly, freely, peacefully together in God's mercy. Kyrie Eliasson. Amen. You have been listening to the sermon podcast from House for All Sinners and Saints. If you would like to support the ongoing ministry of our church, please visit our website at houseforall.org and click on Give.